You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house on this Monday, October 23rd. And yes, this is a sick Daniel Horowitz indeed. Um, I usually get kind of biannual, just massive colds and fever, all that type of stuff when the weather changes. You know, usually it's a little bit earlier, but this year uh, it was kind of mild. And now just I'm, I'm really out of it, but wanted to get something recorded today before who knows what, before I lose my voice or whatever. Still got a sore throat here, but glad to be with you. Um, you know, this week, it's funny, every week starts off with a different meme, a different narrative, and almost always it has nothing to do with the most important issue, or at least what should be our most important issue, our most important focus, something that is vital to our national interests, our domestic policy interests, something that we could redress as a movement, we could redress as a party. Instead, we focus on the media hype with Trump and his response to the media and the media's response to Trump. And this week, the big news so far is who which president was better at phone calling the wives and you know families of of those who died in and you know overseas killed in action american soldiers who died as heroes um you know a lot of this is trump's fault why was he creating this scoreboard oh i'm you know he's good for the christians he's good for the this he's good for the that he says the in front of everything i'm good for the People that died in combat, you know, calling, my calls are better than your calls, better than Obama. So then obviously the media went digging, and then now it's just back and forth. And there's actually a very important lesson going on that, of course, everyone's missing. The most important question nobody's asking is this. What could we all be doing for the veterans of the military for those who are killed in action to ensure that there are fewer people killed in action and in particular that there are fewer people killed in action who die for nothing or often because we're fighting for the wrong cause the opposite enemy now full disclaimer to be very clear here Someone who dies on orders given to them by the military leadership, which ultimately is given by the civilian leadership, although we're going to talk about that in a minute, how the military basically is running its own show, its own branch of government, and that's a big problem. But I don't care why you die in action. You're just as much of a hero. Um, you know, you died just as honorably. But I- I'm sick of these widows. I'm sick of having them. God forbid, I don't mean I'm sick of them. I mean, I'm sick of the policies that both parties continue to perpetuate that ensure that people die in these Islamic civil wars or these endless engagements with no objective, no understanding of our strategic outcome, not putting them in with their best foot and the best equipment and armed, most importantly, with the resolve of the nation to have a conclusive victory. 
if we can't answer the questions that lead to a conclusive victory and ensure that they don't continue dying for who knows what, don't have our troops in there. And that is the broader – see, I'm always concerned about the policy, not the you know, the, the media hype and the counter media hype and the conservative media listening to the liberal media and responding to the squirrel of the day. I'm interested in what are we doing in Niger? And I'm interested in, you know, Mattis and Lindsey Graham now saying we're going to be more involved in Africa. While our Iraq and Afghanistan policies, by the way, have become more disastrous by the day and by by the week. We've learned nothing from what we're doing there. You know, a great example is a soldier just died, or just died, but the, the most recent killed in action in Iraq was the beginning of October. It was a soldier killed in northern Iraq around Tikrit. And we now know, as I mentioned before, that he was killed by an enhanced IED, which has notoriously been planted by Shiite militias funded by Iran. And we, yet, what did he die for? What was he, you know, if I had to say, okay, your son died storming um, Omaha Beach. Your son died in Okinawa. Your husband died at Iwo Jima. You understand what ground we're taking, why we're taking it, on behalf of whom, and how it's sustainable. Here, we're dying, well, to fight ISIS in a vacuum, whatever that means. But really, we're joining along with the Iraqi government, which is a sworn enemy of America now, a client state of Iraq, of, of Iran. And now, that has enabled them to attack our only stable ally there, the Kurds. So at a time when we refuse to get the one intervention right, meaning the one thing that we can be doing that we can answer all the questions, why it's in our interest, how we do it, how it doesn't cost us much, how in the risk versus return matrix, the conclusive decision to lend some soft power and support is worth it. And that is supporting an independent Kurdistan, at least in northern Iraq, that we won't do and will downright support our enemies. And by the way, they're all meeting together. Al-Abadi, um, the uh, Baghdadi prime minister. I call him the Baghdadi prime minister because there is no Iraq. He controls Baghdad. Obviously, the southern part of Iraq, which is Shiite. He's meeting with Erdogan, the Islamo-Nazi in, in Turkey. Good job. Good job. Our own, the, you know, the government that we shed 5,000 lives for. This is the real question nobody wants to answer in the foreign policy smart set in Washington in either party. That we lost almost 5,000 soldiers, 20,000, more than 20,000 injured, and some of them really gruesomely. One to two trillion dollars spent, however you tally that, all to prop up Iran and create this perpetual backlash of a Sunni insurgency that we then have to own and then back the Iranian proxies and then Rinse and repeat. I move on to Afghanistan. Afghanistan, every hour there has been more Taliban sacking of the official Afghani government outposts, overrunning provinces, suicide bombings. It's worse than ever there. It's funny. In order to get us involved, they're like, well, we just have to make sure we don't lose our gains. Just just train the Afghani soldiers. Really? It's, it's stage six cancer. It's over. And, and we're, we're getting our guys involved in there. 
How do you look, how, how do you send people, you know, the guy with the solemn look on his face, takes his cap off his head, knocks on that door, confronts the widow and says, your son, your, your husband died doing what? Again, from his vantage point, from the family's vantage point, certainly it's every bit as honorable. They were following the orders by, of the government of their, their country. But the patriotic thing to do for public policymakers, for, for Congress, and really for Trump, as I'm going to get to in a minute, is to do a complete operational audit. Where do we have troops? Why are they there? Look at the risk versus return matrix. Now, let me just undercut that for a minute. You, before you even have a risk versus a return matrix, you have to be able to articulate in three sentences what you're doing there, why it's in your interest, and how it's achievable. Oh, I'm, I'm combating terrorism in Niger and Mali. Okay, um, so you're – how is that not whack-a-mole? You're meaning you're going to kill terrorists. They're going to stay dead. You're not going to have new ones because fill-in-the-blank is going to hold that ground on behalf of us You know that will make the sacrifice worthwhile. And we won't keep losing it, right? Who is that? Can't answer that. Niger's almost all Muslim. I mean, Nigeria is kind of 50-50. Niger's a Muslim country. I mean, it's desert. It's, what is it, like $300 of GDP per, per person? What, what, there's nothing there. What are we doing there? But anyway, before we get to getting involved more in, in uh, Africa... Guess what happened in Afghanistan? The cigar report. We've we've um, quoted a lot. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. You know they've noted that we we've wasted seventy billion dollars propping up that government. Seventy billion dollars, but alarming rate of Afghan trainees in the U.S. are going AWOL. Let me just start reading to you a little bit from uh, Foundation of Defense of Democracies LongWarJournal.com. This is from Phil Hegseth. A new report from The Cigar revealed that 50% of all foreign military personnel that went AWOL while receiving training in the U.S., meaning there's a lot of countries that have that training, since 2005, war from Afghanistan. This is an alarming rate considering that Afghan forces have only made up 1% of foreign military personnel trained in the same time frame. So 1% of the personnel we train on our shores are Afghanis, 50% are of them, of all the people went AWOL are from Afghanistan. Um, you know, I'm going to link to this in show notes. I don't want to spend more time just reading this. A lot of good, good information there. But it's funny. Remember when I took a lot of flack? In every budget bill, we've appropriated funding for several thousand additional what's called SIVs, Special Immigrant Visas. Oh, Daniel, we're going to leave those people in the lurch, those Afghani interpreters and contractors that helped our military. We have to bring them in and their families. And I was saying, we don't know who these people are, and certainly they're family members. I mean, and, and they go AWOL. But, you know, we'll never be proven right. But again, we get ourselves involved in their dumpster fires, and then we bring the problem to our own shores. Look at the irony. Daniel, we, we got to do something about Afghanistan. We got to do something about Niger. We got to do something about. Look, in a vacuum, we have to do something about everything. In a vacuum, none of this is good news. But you have to assess what is in our best interests. And instead, we've done the opposite. And aside from 
how it hurts our national interests, how we wind up expending lives and and, and tremendous amount of money. I mean, you know, dwarfing even Social Security and Medicare, fighting for for on behalf of our enemies, sometimes against allies, other times just against other enemies, and there's no conclusive outcome, so just stay out of it. But also what I want to discuss today is the effect that has on these families and people dying for nothing. You know, Veterans Day is right around the corner, and I always kind of note this on Veterans Day, on Memorial Day. Our obligation, first and foremost, is what Patton said. I don't want to be crying over people who died for our country. I don't want to be honoring them. Of course I want to be honoring them, but you get what I'm saying. I don't want to have to get in that position. I want the other SOB to die for his country. That's the objective. Kind of paraphrasing the, you know, somewhat bastardized quote there from from Patton. That's the objective. And we're not changing anything. Many of you know that during Obama's last year, those of you that were with us more from the beginning of the conservative conscience know that while no one else was focusing on this, I was focusing on how Trump is put uh, not Trump, Obama was putting our special forces into meat grinders, abusing them, using them like conventional forces with you know, the degree of intensity of special ops missions, but the duration of deployment of uh, and just trying to hold entire regions and countries together with, you know, a few dozen A-teams, a Green Berets or some SEAL teams and the high rate of uh, the suicide and issues that, that we've been having in the special ops community and how we've had special ops deployed anywhere from 130 to 140 countries. Trump was dealt a bad hand, particularly on foreign policy. All these things are are crazy. And at the time, we had Patrick Poole on, by the way, twice, um, and he's been very good on this, that nobody wanted to talk about this during the Obama administration, about the entire continent of Africa falling to Islam. Really all the way down to the Central African Republic, not just the traditional Northern Africa, but all the way down to the equator. So you're seeing this with the entire Western Horm, Mali, Marijuana, Niger, Nigeria, Ghana, these areas, um, certainly Chad, and you know, really even south of that. It's a problem. It, it, it's horrible. But the question is, just like with Afghanistan, what do you do at this point? And my concern is that everything we're doing is not deliberate. It's like we said before. We're doing it because we've been doing it. Just like domestic policy, just like rent-seeking in government. We have a failed program, well, because we've had it, so we're going to continue having it. We're going to continue throwing good money after bad. So Trump didn't start any of this. But what he should have done, if he had, you know, really did have ideology and had, had the smarts, he would have appointed, not even from DOD, but an advisor in the White House with authority to directly you know, ask for anything from DOD, and do a complete operational audit of everything we're doing and why we're doing it and to what end. Who are we backing? Who are we opposing? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Are they reliable? Could they hold the ground or are there no good guys? So everything we're doing is just going to go into a sack full of holes like we've done in the Middle East. Instead, we just continued it. So four Green Berets, finest troops were killed in, in, in Niger. And now we've gotten to this whole debate of calling the widows and this and that. But what I'm more concerned about is um, 
I'll link to this Washington Post article where Lindsey Graham and Mattis are now saying we are going to, you know, we're going to be doubling down. The war is morphing, Graham said. You're going to see more actions in Africa, not less. You're going to see more aggression by the United States towards our enemies, not less. You're going to have decisions being made, not in the White House, but out in the field. Okay. I want to, I want to hone in on that. That sounds really good, right? That's a problem. Don't conflate rules of engagement and execution of killing the enemy once you define who the enemy is, why we're going after him, what ground we're holding on behalf of whom, and the country is behind that. And really, Congress gets involved. So Congress understands, certainly the president understands, and the military then has its marching orders, not the other way around. And then we say, look, I don't want to tie your hands because of politically correct decisions. Go out, no rules of engagement, do what needs to be done. I'm all for that. I'm not talking about rules of engagement. I'm talking about the strategic planning, strategic interests of the United States. The military is running our foreign policy like a fourth branch of government. And as much as I understand that many of us are patriotic, refer back to two of my episodes in August, September, one I had with Captain Jaron Jackson. The military leadership is corrupt as hell. They're a bunch of Marxists. They don't get Islam, and yet they're thrusting our soldiers in there to fight them. They don't even understand the strategic threat. But much like stewards of domestic policy programs, the education cartel and HUD and the, and the insurance cartel, that they essentially control our, our um, policies. They get the government to continue bailing them out. And then they threaten, well, you have to do it, otherwise it's going to be in, unstable and chaotic. Watch those two, two words, instability and chaos. Because Americans, you know, Western democracies, people in Western democracies are always scared of the unknown. So notice what the left does is how do they perpetuate failure? Well, it's p- failure, but it's our failure. It's failure that's been on the books. So people aren't as scared. Well, we see it. It's, you know, it's not great, but uh, you, you don't want things really to blow up, right? So you don't want innovative thinking and to change policies. It's a similar thing. The military is directing, they think somehow it's patriotic to their people, but it's not, getting them killed for no reason and not understanding why we're there. And again, you can't look in a vacuum. Oh, well, there's Al-Qaeda and Niger. I got news for you. There's roughly 50 Muslim countries. Anywhere where you have a Muslim population, you are going to have whatever the flavor of the day is. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, some sort of offshoot, new things we've never heard of will prop up in the coming years. But what you have to do is assess do they really threaten us from where we are? You know, aside from the need sometimes to lob some grenades at them, but to actually get there on the ground and put our soldiers in such danger in such precarious situations where there's no battle lines, there's no ground to properly be held, you're not really on offense, you're just kind of you know, precariously holding things together on behalf of very untrustworthy people. What are we doing? What are we doing? You have to assess that. You have to assess if it's worth it. You know, I say this all the time. The biggest thing is our own border. The Mexican drug cartels. They're killing our country. $130 billion a year in, in harm to illegal, from illegal aliens. Um, every day I get emails you know, from Google alerts and from various other sources I get. Um, 
just another rape, another murder from illegal aliens we don't talk about. That's that we, we view this as immigration. The problem is it's gotten caught up in the politics of immigration. But this should be statecraft, diplomacy, and military. Long ago, we should have deployed our military for that. I, I could look someone there, you know, a while, I mean, it's horrible no matter what, but say, look, you know, we lost a couple soldiers fighting full force and solving the problem forever of the border. That our communities along the border and really everywhere in the country are safe because we, we've rooted out the drug cartels on, on our border. If we're going to nation build, nation build on our border. But no, no, no one will talk about it. We got to get involved in Niger and Mali. Again, I don't. I don't like the fact that Obama and a lot of it was really our intervention in Libya. It's funny. It's like domestic policy, as I always say. One thing begets another. The whole Benghazi thing, really, in Li- Libya, that's how all the arms got into all these groups, and they just took over in these areas. Um, no, no one has shown me a plan for that. The only plan that makes sense is backing the Kurds, but that we won't do. So this is all dumpster fire, all dumpster fire. But nobody will discuss this. Why do we continue having our people die for nothing? You know what special ops are good for? They're good for, you know, looking at some of the recent successes. When I say recent, I mean past couple of years. Um, obviously taking out Bin Laden, taking out the pirates, um, and saving that captured um, uh, ship off the coast of Somalia. The raid they did in Somalia to rescue that woman that was captured. I'm forgetting her name. There's a book written that she wrote on it. Um, They could do that. Here's what you got to do. You go in there, you do A, B, and C, and you get out. But, and I understand some of you are going to say, well, that, Daniel, that's somewhat the difference between, you know, SEAL teams and Green Berets. Green Berets are on the ground working with, you know, training and equipping. Yeah, but there's a limit to that. There, There still has to be a definitive mission. That's what we owe it on a national policy to our to 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 these military families more 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 than just the call after they're killed it's the call before they get killed it's the call that needs to be made to Madison Kelly that they that 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 the military not run what should be civilian policy and just going to Trump and say we need to continue this cuz we can't have instability trump ne- he, here's the problem it's not just that Congress is AWOL, that they don't control our policies. It's that even the president is not running foreign policy. The military is basically running it on their own. They're, they're self-perpetuating. That's a problem. Notice how everything goes awry when we deviate from the Constitution. Everything goes awry when we deviate from the Constitution. I understand things have changed in the world. The transportation, communication, by definition, in the old days, at the times of the Constitution, so any offensive action taken on the land of a foreign country, by definition, that took a long time. So by definition, it wasn't imminent, and by definition, you needed a declaration of war from Congress. I'm not talking about, let me just allow for the fact that if you have an emergency situation that's short-term, a strike, you go in there, fine. The president has that authority. Let, let's just say that nowadays you could kind of squeeze that into the Constitution. But to have these endless engagements for months, for years, and Congress has known about it. They don't you know, question it because they're too lazy. And, and we don't even say, don't you need authorization of force that the nation could debate 
What are we doing? We have North Korea and Iran on our plates. And, and, and we keep a disaster in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. And like, oh, we're going to be more involved in Africa. W- w- wait a minute. Can we have a debate over this? Oh, Daniel, no, we're going to have better rules of engagement. First of all, I'll see when I believe it. But even if we did, rules of engagement what? Like I've said before, if you have Iran and ISIS fighting each other, and I say, we're going to get involved with really amazing rules of engagement. Well, for, for what? Uh, to do what? Who are we going to kill that won't tip the scales to the other side that will be worth it? I mean, no. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do in Niger? Explain to me what we've been doing there. I don't understand it. Maybe someone could explain to me. These are the basic questions nobody inside government and really outside of government is asking. It's a, it's a policy problem, but it's also a legal problem. It's a constitutional problem. We have it backwards. The country as a whole, as expressed through the rep- elected representatives, get behind a certain engagement. And they understand what we're doing. Then you turn to the military, and the president then directs it. He controls it. And then... But, you know, it would, be, it would be advisable that you let the commanders in the field understand what needs to be done to achieve that objective. The problem is it's the military that is now running our objectives, our national security policy. That's just not how our system was set up. Even if we had a military of patents, it wouldn't be a good idea. We have a military of cultural Marxists. When I say, I mean, you know, most of the generals, obviously the flag officers are awesome people. Unfortunately, there's a big burnout rate from the West Point grads. Because they can't take it anymore. You know, if any of you in the audience are, you know, if that applies to you, let me know. Send me an email. Um, tech, uh, shoot me a, a, a tweet at RM Conservative. You know, let me know your thoughts on this. But but everyone is so scared on the right not to look, you know, you're looking uh, unpatriotic. So I don't want to cr- question. No, it's the most patriotic thing to do. To, to have the minimal amount of casualties and ensure to the extent that they're done, they were the most worthwhile you could ever make them. The most in our strategic interest possible. That's the real tragedy of the widows and parents of the fallen heroes. And of course, nobody's going to have this discussion because it's all about the vanity. Anyway, I want to segue into one more point. How is our military slash foreign policy similar to ethanol? Now you're going to say, what? Well, come on, you knew. Those of you who watch my articles this week, you knew I wanted to talk about ethanol this week. Well, very simple. Because we have one harmful failed policy after another, but it creates a constituency. That constituency then controls the future of that policy. That's what we're talking about with the military. This is really embodied in ethanol. The ethanol cartel won. They won everything this week. So every year, the president through his EPA has to set the RFS level, the renewable fuel standards. How much biofuels in general and then certain subcategories, one of them being ethanol, has to be blended into the nation's fuel supply. Um, Basically, how much do uh, oil refiners have to put in and how much, and therefore, by extension, you know, consumers have to buy it. And, you know, there's a whole fight every year. The ethanol lobby says, wait a minute, you're going to you're in it for big oil. You're trying to relieve them of ethanol. I'm like, wait a minute. No one ever asks, who are you? 
to force private enterprise to put in any of your crappy product. I mean, ethanol is one of the worst policies ever foisted upon us. It is a teachable moment for venture socialism and how liberalism is the opposite of what it pretends to be if we only had a party that's you know able to do it. And yet, the Republican Party is so bad on this, they're to the left of President Trump, who's pretty liberal on the issue. So let's unpack this real quick. Kind of running out of, out of time here. So basically, Trump... Um, in July, his EPA and you know Scott Pruitt's been pretty decent on this. He wanted to at least cut it slightly, cut the standard slightly. He wasn't going to even cut ethanol, the subcap, but the overall. Oh gosh, it was um something like trying to trying to get this in front of me just to demonstrate to you guys how dumb it was. But you know, it, it was a decimal point. I mean, the the cut he was going to make to the RFS, and then also a couple of reforms such as allowing exports to count towards the ethanol fulfillment of the of the standard um you know even if they didn't blend it into the supply so they threw a hissy fit and all the you know midwest clowns uh, grassley and joni ernst and you know the people in kansas nebraska dakotas they just went nuts and they held up a trump epa nominee the one that oversees the rfs the assistant administrator of whatever yada yada uh, until he relented, and no, they're going to give them everything they wanted. And I'm thinking, you have the whole country sitting here paying thousands of dollars more every year. I would say thousands if you combine the average family for both food and fuel. It, I've said this before, but Ron DeSantis, if you haven't heard it, Ron DeSantis, congressman from Florida, once told me that he wanted to submit an amendment, I forgot to what bill, to get rid of the RFS, and they told him, they told him, that it violates PAYGO rules unless leadership would have waived it. He couldn't do it from the floor. You know, the, the rules committee would have to waive the rule. Uh, because Why? Well, because it's going to raise, it's going to increase the deficit. How? Because it's going to decrease revenue to the government. How? Well, because by no longer putting crap into your engine and getting full unadulterated fuel, motorists are going to get more fuel mileage. And if they get more fuel mileage, well, they're going to fill up less and therefore pay less in gas taxes, federal gas taxes. That's how well known it is that this is so such garbage using the boot of government. This is the Obamacare of energy, literally a mandate using the boot of government to mandate that you have to purchase their odious and inefficacious garbage product. I mean, you can't think of a worse you – know, normally you say – You'd, you'd be better off if you flush us down the toilet. And you really would because if you took if you took uh, 40% of corn grown in this country, which they're doing, 4 out of 10 rows of corn, and just flush it down the toilet, you come out ahead because you're just going to then raise the cost of food because you're making it scarce, which they're doing anyway. But at least you won't put it in our engine and screw with our fuel. But we do both. And here, without, without even having a fight, without anyone standing for we the people, they won. I know it's kind of a far-flung juxtaposition, but to me, this is what's happening with our foreign policy. We're just standing there holding, holding the bag and like, why are our soldiers, soldiers here? Why are we training and equipping this Islamic enemy? Why are we doing this? Can we stop? Can we have a debate over this? No. Shut up and stop criticizing the military. We don't live in a constitutional republic anymore. The whole point of a constitutional republic is that the whole of the people are represented through Congress first and foremost. 
Congress is the strongest branch. Instead, they became the weakest branch. You know, we did a full hour last week on how they outsourced their uh, cojones to, to the judiciary. So they're doing the same thing on foreign policy. They just outsourced it completely to the military. Not even the civilian leadership so much. The military runs it. They tell the civilian leadership what to do, and the civilian leadership um, tells Congress what to do, and they just sign off on it, and we never have a debate. So the point is, it's special interests, a narrow sliver of people in the country just basically self-perpetuating their own unconstitutional failed policies. It's a similar thing here. They now have the ability to threaten, you can't cut off the supply of ethanol. Like, what? What right do you have to for? I, I mean, I, I literally I get tweets all the time from from ethanol farmers. Like, oh, what do you mean, Daniel? Hey, how dare you? Like, if your product is so great, then why do you need to force me to purchase it? Don't I have the right to choose? Don't I have the right to fill up a tank of gas without your stuff in it? If it's so compelling, I, I should want to do it on my own. But it's an entitlement. That's the problem. We don't have a constitutional republic anymore. Anyway, there's a lot more to learn from that ethanol lesson, which I'm going to talk about later in some of the pieces I have coming, just lamenting the GOP Senate. Joni Ernst. Oh, she's regarded as a conservative. She's a left-wing fraud. She always was. I mean, I certainly never bought into it from day. I'm going to castrate the hog. So she runs this ad saying, oh, I'm going to castrate the pork in Washington because I'm a hog farmer. Um, really manly, Joni Ernst, very manly and tough. Well, here's the deal. She was castrated by the Washington hogs in three seconds. She has been with McConnell and leadership on every single issue. She's been liberal on every, and by the way, the only thing she's castrated, speaking of the military, military are the troops in our military. She emphatically opposes Trump. She wants transgender sex change assignment surgery paid for in the military. So I guess she is for castration after all. You know, this is how Orwellian it is. People like Joni Ernst. See, it's not just that they stay away from her issues and then get in there and be liberal. They run emphatically on her issues and they try to find clever ways to gain attention. Castrating hogs, they'll run these crazy ads and everyone's all like, yeah, look at that. That's amazing. Oh, let's vote for her. And then they get in there and they do the exact opposite. And Joni Ernst is a per- – I mean, other people were involved in this ethanol thing, but she's a perfect case study. She complained about big government spending and then every at every turn supports it. And then what's funny is, you know, she's part of this uh, values action team for values issues. Guess what? She's supporting castration in the military. I guess that, that's what it means to be a values-based conservative now. And also – this Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray, Obamacare cartel bailout, which dramatically will expand funding for, for abortions through the subsidies. Well, values action team. There you go. Oh, by the way, did I tell you that she campaigned on castrating Obamacare? Oh, well. Anyway, that is the state of affairs for this week. I'm getting really light lightheaded here. I can barely talk. I am so out of it but thanks for indulging me this week even though i'm operating only on uh 60 capacity kind of like a f- tank of gas with ethanol in it hopefully next week we'll get the ethanol out of me and the sickness and we'll be back in full force thank you guys god bless y'all this has been another episode of the conservative conscience